And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Trapcast 28, a special edition podcast dedicated to continuing our critical review of Taylor Marshall's book, Infiltration, The Plot to Destroy the Church from Within. This is part two of that endeavor, and it is also the final part. So we're going to wrap it up in this podcast, and it's going to be a long one, and it's going to be intense, so uh, fasten your seatbelts, but it will be well worth your time. All right, so we are on chapter 21 of Infiltration, which begins on page 153 in the printed copy. The chapter is entitled Ottaviani Intervention Against Pope Paul VI, and it is a whopping one and a half pages in length. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this in part one back in May, but I think the reason why many of his chapters are so ridiculously short is that he wanted to have a total of 33 chapters. It's just speculation on my part. I have no idea if that is the reason, but I noticed that the total number of chapters is 33, and I can imagine that he wanted to have that outcome. In any case, for those who are not familiar with the term Ottaviani intervention, uh, that is the informal name for a theological study whose proper name is Brief Critical Study of the New Order of Mass, the Novus Ordo Missae. It was written by a group of Roman theologians. That's how they identified themselves. The main writer was the French-Dominican Father Michel-Louis Gerard de Laurier, who later became a Sedevacanus bishop. The study was sent to Paul VI with an accompanying letter signed by Cardinal Alfredo Ottaviani and Cardinal Antonio Bacci. Actually, he was only Bishop Bacci because it was the false Pope John XXIII, who'd made him a cardinal, but that's beside the point now. So, the Ottaviano intervention was an attempt spearheaded by Cardinal Ottaviani to stop the new mass, or at least get it modified, uh, before it would take effect. The study itself was dated June 5th, 1969. The letter accompanying it was dated September 25th. And the study together with the letter were given to Paul VI on September 29th. So that was roughly two months before the Mass was going to be mandatory throughout the Church in the Roman Rite. Paul VI had published the decree introducing it back in April of that year. 
Originally, the idea had been to have a great many cardinals and bishops sign the letter and support the theological study in order to get the new mass stopped. But because the text of the intervention was leaked ahead of time and made public by some unscrupulous soul that apparently scared off most of the signers, and in the end, only Ottaviani and Bacci signed it, not one other bishop. So anyway, that's the background, and now we can look at how Taylor Marshall opens the chapter. He says, quote, When the 1969 Novus Ordo Misse of Bonini was unveiled, the stalwart French missionary Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre gathered 12 theologians to study the liturgy thoroughly, unquote. Now, that's quite a claim that Archbishop Lefebvre was the mastermind behind the Ottaviani intervention. It's the first time I even heard that. Now, if you've listened to Tratcast 27, where we discuss the first part of Marshall's book, then it probably won't surprise you to learn that Marshall doesn't bother to back up his claim, so you're left to do your own research. And that's what I did. Lo and behold, Marshall's claim is supported by Wikipedia, which mentions as its source a webpage by the Society of St. Pius X, which is the organization Lefebvre, went on to establish in 1970. So the SSPX claims that its founder, Archbishop Lefebvre, is behind the Ottaviani intervention. Well, that is strongly disputed, for example, by Father Anthony Ciccata, a former SSPX priest who was dismissed in 1983 for being a sede Father Ciccata, who first translated the Ottaviani intervention into English many years ago, wrote about the origin of the intervention in an introductory text. Here is what he said, quote, In the conservative camp were two members of the Roman aristocracy, Vittoria Cristina Gurini and Emilia Petticoni. Both were friends of Cardinal Ottaviani, then retired from his post as prefect of the Holy Office, and both had wide connections at the Vatican and in other ecclesiastical circles. The ladies used their contacts to bring together a small group of conservative theologians, liturgists, and pastors who would prepare a study of the contents of the new order of Mass. Cardinal Ottaviani agreed, it is unclear at exactly what point, to revise the study and to present it to Paul VI. Unquote. And that is from Father Ciccata's book, The Ottaviani Intervention, published in 1992 by Tan Books, Page 2. According to a personal email Father Ciccata wrote me on June 29th of last year, 2019, all Archbishop Lefebvre really did with regard to the Ottaviani intervention was to ask Father Gerard de Laurier, who had written the draft, to translate it into French. That's it. And you can find this mentioned, by the way, in Father Ciccata's more recent book, Work of Human Hands, published in 2010 on pages 134 and 135. And we've got that linked in the show notes at tradcast.org. Just scroll down to Tradcast 28 and then click on that link and you will find the show notes there. So, who's right? The SSPX or Father Ciccata? Well, strictly speaking, I don't know. I can't easily verify it independently. However, consider this. Archbishop Lefebvre himself did not sign the letter of Cardinals Ottaviani and Bacci that was presented to Paul VI with the study. No other bishop signed it besides those two, 
although Lefebvre himself had reportedly said that there were 600 other bishops ready to sign it. Well, that was before the text was leaked in the press, and so in the end, not even Lefebvre signed it. But all right, let's get back to Taylor Marshall. He writes on the same page, quote, Cardinal Ottaviani and Antonio Cardinal Bacci wrote an introduction to this document and presented the study to Pope Paul VI on September 25, 1969, the feast day of St. Pius X. Yeah, September 25th is not the feast of St. Pius X, and never was. In the traditional Roman calendar, it's September 3rd, and in the Novus Ordo calendar, it's August 21st. But anyway, what Marshall says isn't even true. Although the letter of Ottaviani and Bacci was dated September 25th, they didn't actually present it to him until September 29th, as Father Cicada notes in his 1992 book and in his 2010 book. Then, on page 154 of Infiltration, Marshall writes, quote, Pope Paul VI received the so-called Ottaviani intervention coolly. The Holy See issued a response on November 12, 1969, replying that the critical study contained claims that were superficial, exaggerated, inexact, emotional, and false, unquote. Yeah, he got that from Wikipedia, because the source citation he gives matches that given by Wikipedia. It's a French booklet on the new mass, but there's no reference given to the actual Vatican document. The quotation must be accurate, though, because Father Annibale Bunini, the chief architect of the new mass, quotes it as well in his memoirs, but also without giving proper citation information. In his book, The Reform of the Liturgy, 1948 to 1975, on page 287, Bonini says that the quote is from a letter written by Cardinal Franjo Saper to the Secretariat of State. At the time, Saper was the pro-prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So, it was more of an internal Vatican document. In any case, we know how Paul VI ultimately responded to the Ottaviani intervention. He made some minor changes to the general instruction on the Roman Missal, which is uh, basically a, a how-to manual that is included in the front of the Missal, and it describes how the new Mass is to be celebrated and so on. But he left the rites and the prayers of the new Mass precisely as they were. So, as far as the new Mass before and after the Ottaviani intervention is concerned, it is exactly the same. All right, moving on to chapter 22 of Infiltration. It's entitled, Archbishop Lefebvre and the Traditionalist Resistance. If based on the title you figure that that must be one heck of a chapter, I have to disappoint you because that chapter is even shorter than the prior one at just over one page in length. Nothing much objectionable in that chapter. I only want to mention that once again, one can see that Marshall didn't carefully proofread his work because he says on page 156 that in using the liturgical books of 1962, Archbishop Lefebvre used, quote, the missal last issued by Pope John XXIII before he called Vatican II, unquote. Well, not quite. Marshall meant to say before John XXIII opened Vatican II, but certainly not before he called it, because he first called it on January 25th, 1959, and officially convoked it on December 25th, 1961. 
So not a big deal, really, but here you can see once again just how sloppy Marshall is, as though he's in a hurry to get the book finished, and he's not really paying all that close attention to what he's writing. And that's a book he calls his greatest literary achievement. That's frightening for a man who has a PhD in philosophy. It's also quite disrespectful to the reader, in my opinion. All right, the next chapter is entitled Resistance to the Novus Ordo Mise. Just a few quick things on that. On page 159, Marshall writes that in 1972, Paul VI abolished the, quote, minor orders of porter, exorcist, acolyte, and subdeacon, unquote. Now, it's true that he abolished all those, but just for the record, the subdiaconate is not a minor order. It's part of the major orders. Just saying. On page 160, Marshall claims, quote, Pope Paul VI's decision to authorize laymen as extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion broke with Western and Eastern tradition, which absolutely forbade anyone but a priest from administering Holy Communion. Unquote. That's false. It's false to say that absolutely no one but a priest was ever permitted to administer Holy Communion. Taylor Marshall could have simply looked this up in canon law. Canon 845 of the 1917 Code of Canon Law says, quote, The ordinary minister of Holy Communion is only a priest. A deacon is an extraordinary minister, authorized by the local ordinary, or a pastor granted for grave cause, which in case of legitimate necessity is presumed, unquote. So there, before Vatican II, not only priests, but also deacons could licitly administer Holy Communion with the permission of the local bishop. So, Marshall just doesn't know what he's talking about. The question is, why didn't he bother to look it up? Yes, that takes some work. But when you're writing a book on this topic and are happy to rake in the dough with each copy sold, then you may just need to spend a few minutes to look stuff up. Then, on page 161, Marshall states, quote, It is difficult to understand how Pope Paul VI would lament the demonic infiltration of the Church while he promoted reforms that encouraged it. And then he quotes Paul VI, saying, We would say that, through some mysterious crack, no, it's not mysterious, through some crack, the smoke of Satan has entered the Church of God, there is doubt, uncertainty, problems, unrest, dissatisfaction, confrontation, unquote. Well, how is it difficult to understand that if we're operating on the idea of infiltration? Did Taylor Marshall suddenly forget that he was writing a book on the topic of the infiltration of the church? You know what? When Paul VI said that the smoke of Satan has entered the temple of God, he was probably boasting. And even if he wasn't, even if he was expressing surprise, that's totally compatible with what an infiltrator would do. First, he causes chaos within the organization, and then he plays innocent lamb and, and acts all surprised that everything's a mess. It worked for Paul VI, didn't it? Ah, but you see, Marshall probably doesn't want to accept that Paul VI was himself an infiltrator, since Marshall believes that Paul was a true pope. See, later on, on page 192, he says about John Paul II, quote, Whether one admires John Paul II or not, he was certainly not an infiltrator of the church, unquote. 
Well, it doesn't work that way. You can't say the church has been infiltrated, look at the fruits, and and then the very individuals most responsible for those fruits get a pass because you'd rather not say that they were some of those infiltrators you're denouncing. Such a thesis simply can't be taken seriously, and in holding it, I think Marshall is once again showing himself to be little more than a storyteller, a man who's using his name, face, and influence to direct other people's minds in a particular predetermined direction, regardless of what the facts actually are. Next is chapter 24 on the infiltration of the Vatican Bank under Paul VI. We can pretty much skip over that. Marshall mentions that Paul VI mysteriously hired the Freemason and mafioso Michele Sendona as a financial advisor and says that this, quote, points to deep Freemasonic infiltration in the corridors of the Vatican by 1968, three years after Vatican II. Unquote. He says that on pages 166 and 167. Yeah, it really does point to Masonic infiltration, and it points to the idea that perhaps Paul VI was one of the infiltrators himself. But of course, it sounds better if you attribute it to mystery instead, right? You've probably heard it before. Paul VI was an enigma. You know, I I don't think there is much mystery there. If you suppose that he tried to wreck the church while retaining the occasional appearance of piety, orthodoxy, and sincerity, then there really isn't much mystery left. Next, chapter 25, Infiltration and the Mysterious Death of John Paul I. Sloppy proofreading can be found on page 174, where Marshall writes that the Money the Vatican lost is nothing to sneeze it instead of sneeze at. Chapter 26 is on John Paul II. On page 180, Marshall claims that during the Second Conclave of 1978, the one that elected Carol Wojtyla, that, quote, the conservative Cardinal Siri agreed to support Wojtyla, unquote. Now, that's quite a claim, and as usual, Marshall fails to provide any evidence for it. But that made me curious, and so I started to dig a bit. Marshall relates all these details about what happened during the conclave, but nowhere does he tell you where he got his information from. But it gets better. On page 180, he writes that there's a rumor that John Paul II had first wanted his papal name to be Stanislaus, the name of a Polish saint. And he puts a footnote there. It's uh, footnote 124 in the book. And that footnote has a reference to the article A Foreign Pope in Time Magazine of October 30th, 1978, page 1. The problem is that article, I looked it up, does not mention anything about John Paul II wanting to pick a different papal name. So, here Marshall finally does mention a source in a footnote, and then it turns out that the source doesn't even mention what he implied it does. And as for Cardinal Siri supporting Wojtyla, well, here's what that Time Magazine article, A Foreign Pope, says about that. Quote, When Genoa's Giuseppe Cardinal Siri, the frontrunner at the start of the conclave, was asked what he thought of John Paul II's inaugural message, delivered only half an hour earlier, he snapped peevishly, 
I can't remember what he said, unquote. No, folks, Cardinal Siri was no supporter of John Paul II in the Conclave. Who knows where Marshall got that idea from? It's evident, though, that he didn't read the source, which he put as footnote 124. Let's move on to page 185. Marshall writes, quote, The 1983 Code of Canon Law introduced the rule that Catholic clergy may administer penance, anointing of the sick, and Holy Communion to Christians in danger of death, but not in full communion with the Catholic Church, provided that they manifest Catholic faith in respect to these sacraments and are properly disposed. Canon 844, paragraph 4. Unquote. Actually, it's even worse. Not even danger of death is required. Marshall references Canon 844, paragraph 4. He should have looked at paragraph 3 as well, which says, quote, Catholic ministers administer the sacraments of penance, Eucharist, and anointing of the sick licitly to members of Eastern churches which do not have full communion with the Catholic Church if they seek such on their own accord and are properly disposed. This is also valid for members of other churches, which in the judgment of the Apostolic See are in the same condition in regard to the sacraments as these Eastern churches. Unquote. So Marshall's greatest literary achievement is once again found wanting. On pages 185 and 186, he talks about how John Paul II significantly changed the process of canonization, yet once again without any documentation. Remember, whenever a claim is made concerning a fact, and that fact is not self-evident, then if you give no documentation, you're basically just telling stories. They may be true, they may be false. The reader has no way of knowing. And so you're not doing him a favor. He has to accept what you say on your mere say-so. Now, if you're a recognized authority on the subject, then that's fine. Then you can get away with that. But Taylor Marshall is definitely not an authority on church history. You know, this book, Infiltration, could have been such a great work. It could have been a goldmine of well-researched and properly presented information about the modernist takeover of the Catholic Church. Instead, Marshall offers this half-baked piece of fluff that gives an initial appearance of respectability, but once you give it a closer look, you realize it's totally shallow. And to me, it seems like it was simply meant to be a tool for Marshall to get himself quick name recognition and influence and credibility in the trad world while Francis is still alive and there's this huge window of opportunity to reach and influence a lot of people who've had it with Francis. That's what I think the primary aim of the book is. And I'm sure Taylor doesn't mind it being a cash cow to boot. All right, on page 187, Marshall talks about the Assisi interreligious prayer for peace abominations. And he mentions that the Buddhists placed a Buddha on top of the tabernacle, which is true, and that they burned incense to it. And Taylor says emphatically that they did this with permission from the Pope. That's a quote. But the problem is, he, he doesn't give a source to back that up. He doesn't show 
when, where, how John Paul II gave that permission. And that would have been really important to, to point to because defenders of John Paul say that although John Paul II permitted them to uh, whatever pray there, he would have never allowed them to put a Buddha on the tabernacle had he known that they were going to do that. You can look it up online. That's what I did. That is what they say, that John Paul II wasn't present in that, in that location when that happened and it wasn't authorized by him. So what we have here is par for the course. Marshall makes an important claim and doesn't back it up. And on top of that, he misspells the phrase Dalai Lama on the same page, making it into Dalai Lama. All right, then we come to that one curious sentence we already mentioned earlier. On page 192, Marshall proclaims, quote, Whether one admires John Paul II or not, he was certainly not an infiltrator of the church, unquote. Now, that is a completely unreasonable conclusion to arrive at, given all the evidence he has given in this book up to that point. He doesn't simply say that it's not clear if John Paul was himself an infiltrator or that it's doubtful or whatever. He doesn't say that. He goes much further. He says he was certainly not an infiltrator. And that's completely unjustifiable. I mean, at the very least, he would have had to say that, you know, maybe he wasn't an infiltrator. So, how is it that such an unreasonable conclusion is coming from a PhD in philosophy? What's going on here? Did he suddenly lose his reasoning abilities? I doubt it. I suspect that he needed to put that in there in order to make the publisher happy, or maybe Opus Dei. Remember, Sophia Institute Press, that's the publisher, isn't exactly anti-John Paul II. They're a conservative Novus Ordo publisher. In fact, they even publish books by Opus Dei authors. So I think that Marshall's claim that uh, Wojtyla was certainly not an infiltrator is simply damage control, a sort of disclaimer that he had to put there in order to be allowed to publish. It's definitely not something you would conclude from reading his book. Then on page 193... Marshall writes that despite drinking deeply of Vatican II, John Paul II nevertheless, quote, still retained the piety of a Catholic, unquote. Well, okay, that's maybe the impression you would have if you simply accepted his external pious acts at face value without evaluating them in their entire context, you know, against the Assisi abominations and stuff. But I think a more perceptive assessment of John Paul II's apparent piety would be that he simply clung to enough outward devotions so as to better deceive the masses. There. You're welcome. Next, uh, we can skip over chapters 27 and 28, and then it gets interesting in chapter 29, which is entitled infiltration and the plot against Benedict XVI. The funny thing is that this title doesn't reflect the content of the chapter. The chapter isn't about infiltration or some plot against Benedict. 
It's about some of the main things Benedict did. He issued three encyclicals, published some more in Pontificum, allowing wide use of the Latin Mass, and he tried to reconcile the Lefebvreist Society of St. Pius X and rescinded the 1988 excommunications against the four surviving bishops. What that has to do with infiltration and the plot against Benedict XVI is anyone's guess. What's clear is that the chapter is once again ridiculously short, two pages in total. But in exchange for that, Marshall allowed himself only one egregious typo on page 214, where he writes each another instead of each other or one another. Chapter 30 is called Infiltration of the Vatican Bank and the Butler of Pope Benedict XVI. On page 218, Marshall speaks of a, quote, negative U.S. $10.5 million deficit for Vatican City, unquote. Yes, you heard that right. A negative deficit. Hilarious. Chapter 31 is entitled Infiltration and the Election of Pope Francis, and it starts off on page 223 with a reported vision of the Venerable Anne Catherine Emmerich, an Augustinian nun of the early 18th and 19th centuries. Marshall calls the vision an allocution, which is another hilarious howler. He meant, of course, the word locution, not allocution. An allocution is a speech given by the Pope. Allocution is words or thoughts that are supernaturally communicated to the intellect. On page 225, Marshall writes about Bergoglio's election on March 13, 2013, quote, Mission accomplished for the St. Gallen Mafia. At last they delivered to the world a revolution in Tiara and Cope, as had been promised by the Freemasonic document Alta Vendita more than 150 years before, unquote. What's noteworthy here is that Marshall only says that about the 2013 conclave that elected Francis, and yet it was the conclave of 1958, which produced John XXIII, that set the modernist revolution in motion. And it was the conclave of 1963 that gave the world Paul VI, who approved Vatican II and gave us the new mass and the whole Novus Ordo religion. The revolution in Tiara and Cope began in 1958, not in 2013. By means of Vatican II, John XXIII and Paul VI brought the French Revolution into the Catholic world. The Freemasonic ideas of equality, liberty, and fraternity were reflected in Vatican II's doctrines and decrees regarding collegiality, religious liberty, and ecumenism. There is your revolution in Tiara and Cope. Francis is just the latest rotten fruit of that revolution. And by the way, unlike John XXIII and Paul VI, Francis doesn't even use a tiara, and his copes aren't that great either. All right, moving on, we now get to the really good stuff. Chapter 32, the second to last chapter, is entitled Solving the Current Crisis. Now, that's quite an audacious title because, spoiler alert, Taylor actually solves nothing at all in that chapter. He, he thinks he does. I'll, I'll give him that. But, in fact, in the last chapter, 33, 
He even admits that what he proposes in chapter 32 is just the diagnosis and not the cure, not the solution. But regardless, let's have a good look at that chapter now, solving the current crisis. Marshall brings up all possible positions one could possibly embrace in response to the infiltration of the Catholic Church in that chapter. The first position he mentions and critiques is becoming what he calls a modernist Catholic. Now, that's already a completely unacceptable way of putting it. There is no such thing as a modernist Catholic any more than there could be a Protestant Catholic, an Arian Catholic, a Jansenist Catholic, or an Nestorian Catholic, for instance. By become a modernist Catholic, Marshall basically means become what we call a Novus Ordo, right? Or more specifically, become uh, a Novus Ordo who's entirely loyal to Francis and all his erroneous and heretical teachings and ideas. So, in other words, go Vatican II all the way, become a Bergolian Novus Ordo, and reject everything pre-Vatican II that contradicts that. That's one possible response to all this, Marshall says, but he doesn't recommend it. At the same time, he doesn't exactly condemn it either. He merely says on page 230, quote, Most serious and informed Catholics cannot swallow this pill, unquote. Which is an odd way to put it, because that's not an evaluation of the position. It's not a judgment. Instead, it's, well, it's not a judgment about what, you know, about the position itself. Instead, it's a descriptive statement about other people. Now, granted, he does go on to say that Catholicism can't change, can't contradict itself, but he doesn't come right out and say, no, this is not an option, this is not right, this is a betrayal of Christ, or something to that effect. Instead, he concludes, quote, if one refuses to accept the modernist version of Catholicism as intellectually dishonest, he must find a new narrative. Unquote. Well, you know what? This isn't about finding a narrative. This is about finding and embracing the truth. And the truth about this we know from, first of all, the Roman Catholic faith, and then from what can be known from reason and from history. It's not about finding a narrative. But maybe that was another stipulation from the publisher. I don't know. Now, there's another thing to be pointed out here. Regardless of how he phrases it here, we all know that Marshall holds that if you follow Francis and the Vatican II religion, then, then you've contradicted the Catholicism of the past, right? And that's an impossible position because the church can't contradict herself. Well, okay, but that means that if you accept the supposed Pope since Vatican II as legitimate, then Catholicism has refuted itself because then Catholicism does contradict itself, See, you can't say, on the one hand, that Catholicism can't ever change and can't contradict itself, and then, on the other hand, claim that those supposed popes who did change and contradict it are still legitimate and valid popes. It's just that their teachings don't count precisely because they do contradict. I mean, that reduces the idea that Catholicism is unchangeable to a meaningless slogan. The only way out of that is to hold that those apparent popes were false popes, and therefore their teachings don't count. And by the way, 
Marshall may think that the way out of this conundrum is to reject the new teachings and embrace the old ones, but the truth is that if Francis and his five predecessors are true popes, well, then you could just as well take the opposite approach and accept all of the new teachings while rejecting all the prior ones. Because those two approaches are actually equivalent in terms of absurdity, in terms of contradicting the very truth Marshall himself puts forward, namely, that Catholicism cannot ever change. I mean, think about it. If the Church can teach error and heresy today, then there's no reason why she couldn't have done so in the past as well, or at any point. So it really doesn't matter, then, if you stick to the old and reject the new, or if you accept the new and dump the old. Either way, you're saying that the Church has misled you in matters of eternal salvation, either now or in the past. And so that would mean that the Church then is not the Ark of Salvation, not the pillar and ground of the truth, as St. Paul writes in his first letter to St. Timothy, chapter 3, verse 15. Marshall's next option that he discusses is becoming an atheist. Now, since Marshall is willing to bring that up as a possible option, not as the correct position, obviously, but nevertheless one that some misguided souls might unhappily consider, one would expect that Marshall, who has a doctorate in Thomistic philosophy, that he would just, you know, take the opportunity and totally destroy atheism, even just in fairly general terms that he would explain how atheism is totally impossible and absolutely not an option one can consider. But instead of doing that, he writes two sentences that are supposed to explain why he doesn't think atheism is a viable option for him. Here's what he says on page 231. Quote, for myself, I cannot accept atheism because I have personally encountered Christ, his blessed mother, and the saints in my life. I also remain fully convinced of the existence of God and his full revelation of himself in the incarnate person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unquote. That is his answer to the atheist objection. That is utterly pathetic. But not only that, it is also very dangerous because it is manifestly weak and subjective. Marshall doesn't, as a Thomist would, explain why atheism is objectively impossible and unworthy of a rational creature. Instead, he dismisses atheism on the grounds of his own subjective experience. That is neo-modernism. In fact, that is exactly the kind of stuff Francis would say. That it's all about an encounter with Christ. And once you've encountered him, you want to share that experience with others. And that's what evangelization is about. You want others to also have that experience. That is Vatican II theology. And Marshall knows it. He doesn't even attempt to refute atheism here. Not even in the most general way. He's not telling you why atheism is false or impossible. Instead, he's telling you what he's personally convinced of, which has nothing to do with anything. His response only says something about himself. It doesn't say anything about the error of atheism. So here, as a Thomist philosopher, 
Remember, this guy gives online courses and stuff. He uh, directs the new St. Thomas Institute that he founded. Here he could have really hit a home run because this is right up his alley. Here he could have used his extensive education to hammer atheism, proving it to be intellectually untenable, even, even just very briefly, right? Or he could have referred you, he could have referred the reader to other sources where atheism is refuted at length. Instead, he offers two sentences about his private experience. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's almost an invitation to atheism because he's saying between the lines that there really isn't any way to refute it. He just personally doesn't like it because he's had certain experiences. Unbelievable. And to further underscore just how serious this is, remember that the First Vatican Council declared it a dogma that the existence of God can be proved by reason alone. You can check Denzinger, 1785 and 1806. And uh, also the Oath Against Modernism, which Pope St. Pius X instituted in 1910 to be sworn by Catholic clerics and teachers, that oath includes the following line right at the beginning. Quote, I profess that God, the origin and end of all things, can be known with certainty by the natural light of reason from the created world. See Romans 1.19. That is, from the visible works of creation as a cause from its effects, and that therefore his existence can also be demonstrated. Unquote. So what Marshall said there on atheism is utterly disgraceful. And I really don't understand why he did that. Beats me. Next, he uh, talks briefly about the Protestant option, which we're going to skip, and then the Eastern Orthodox option on page 232. Now, for that one, Marshall mentions as one of the reasons for rejecting it that, quote, the Orthodox have already ecclesiastically approved divorce and remarriage and contraception, unquote. Yeah, so if that means that Eastern Orthodoxy is not the true religion for those reasons, then that would also disqualify the Novus Ordo religion headed by Francis, wouldn't it? Marshall goes on, quote, It seems apparent to me that Pope Francis actually holds the Eastern Orthodox position on the papacy, collegiality, divorce, and the pastoral notion of economia revamped as being true to conscience, unquote. Does this man have any idea what he's saying? He says it is clear to him that Francis, the man he claims is the vicar of Christ, the Pope of the Catholic Church, that Francis holds the Eastern Orthodox view of the papacy and, and of other things. I mean, hello? The Eastern Orthodox's view of the papacy is that there is no papacy, okay? They believe that, yes, there is the primacy of Rome, but it's only a primacy of honor, of service, of love, and not one of jurisdiction over the universal church, which is dogma, right? So that view of the Eastern Orthodox is heresy, so according to Taylor Marshall, Francis 
is actually an Eastern Orthodox rather than a Catholic. But hey, not to worry. He's nevertheless the Pope. The head of the Catholic Church doesn't have to be a member of the Catholic Church. The Pope doesn't have to be a Catholic. The Pope doesn't have to believe in the papacy. Well, that's quite the narrative, I'd say. All right, next, we finally come to the topic of sedevacantism. Taylor Marshall explains what he thinks is wrong with sedevacantism and why he doesn't take that position. Here's what he says on page 233. Quote, the Sedevacantists hold that the papal conclave of 1958 was irregular, since the white smoke and ringing bells indicated a papal election, but no pope appeared on that occasion. They point to this oddity and suspect that Cardinal Siri was validly elected, but falsely pressured to resign. No one knows exactly what happened within the conclave of 1958, but Sedevacantists resolutely affirm that Cardinal Roncalli was not validly elected as Pope John XXIII, either because he was a Freemason and a heretic, or because the election itself was invalid. Unquote. All right, look, I'm not trying to beat up on the author here simply because he disagrees with Sedevacantism, okay? I am not opposed to legitimate discussion of issues, but for heaven's sake, at least make a bit of an effort to get the basics right. I mean, what Marshall says here is just idiotic. He's reducing Sedevacantism to problems with the 1958 conclave. I mean, that's part of it. And we certainly maintain that you eventually have to conclude that the election of Roncalli as John Twenty-Third was invalid, or that if it was valid, then th that he lost the pontificate at some point thereafter. But we're not Sedevacantists because we suspect someone else was elected pope, or because we just happen to think that Roncalli wasn't validly elected. I mean, that misses the essence of the Sedevacantist argument. And I'll explain that in a little bit. But for right now, let me quote some more from Taylor Marshall. Quote, They also note that the third secret of Fatima was to be revealed in 1960, and that John XXIII refused to reveal it because it indicated that he was an antipope or warned the church of an impending false and heretical council. Unquote. Really? I don't know what source he's using for that, since, of course, he doesn't tell us. It's not like... Everything's footnoted in his book. But this is really the first time I've heard the claim that the third secret of Fatima says John Twenty-Third is an anti-pope. Hey, maybe it does. It certainly could. But I've never heard that before. And I think that if that were a major argument made by Sedevacandus, I would have come across it at some point. Now, the idea that the third secret talks about an evil council, yes, that is a suspicion many people have, not just Sedevacandus's. Keep in mind that many of the semi-traditionalists like Taylor Marshall believe Vatican II to have been evil, erroneous, or even heretical. They just think that John XXIII and Paul VI were true popes nonetheless. In any case, the third secret of Fatima is totally peripheral to the issue of Sedevacantism. Marshall further, quote, 
Sedevacantism is attractive because, in one swoop, all the problems of infiltration, modernism, Vatican II, Paul VI's new liturgies, and a pope kissing a Koran disappear. Unquote. Well, yeah, obviously a lot of problems do disappear, but not the problem of infiltration. It would just mean that the infiltrators succeeded in usurping ecclesiastical offices and creating a pseudo-Catholic sect masquerading as the Catholic Church. You know, that very false church which Marshall himself mentions on page 223, quoting approvingly from Anne Catherine Emmerich's vision of May 13, 1820, where she says, quote, I saw how baleful the consequences of this false church would be, unquote. And yes, that was May 13th, the very day on which Our Lady of Fatima would first appear in 1917. So Marshall himself quotes this as part of the introduction to his chapter 31 on infiltration and the election of Francis. Next, Marshall says, quote, I have noticed an increasing number of young men weary of the effeminacy of the post-conciliar liturgy and doctrine rallying to Sedevacantism as a logical, calm, and stoic solution to ecclesial chaos. Unquote. Okay, so the question then is whether Sedevacantism is a logical, calm, and stoic solution to the ecclesial chaos since Vatican II. Actually, even more so, the question is whether Sedevacantism is true, and that is ultimately the only question that really matters. You know, the mere fact that Sedevacantism can explain all the evils, heresies, and blasphemies from the Novus Ordo popes by denying that they were ever real popes is hardly an argument against Sedevacantism. I mean, the whole point of taking any position in this, right, doesn't even matter which one, is because you need to have a position that can account for what we've been witnessing in accordance with Catholic doctrine. So don't argue, and I'm, I'm not saying he's even doing that here, although it, it does seem to me uh, that he's hinting at it. Don't argue that because Sedevacantism does that, therefore it can't be right, because, well, you know, that's the easy solution. That would actually answer it. Oh, my goodness. Next, Marshall claims that Sedevacantism originated chiefly in the late 1970s when Father Gerard de Laurier proposed his material formal thesis, also called Sedeprivationism, which argues that the Novus Ordo popes were popes materially, but not formally. Now, that gets misunderstood a lot. What it basically means is that they were pope-elect, but never actually pope. In other words, they were in possession of a valid election, a valid designation to the papacy, but never received the papacy because of a voluntary obstacle preventing it. And if I'm not mistaken, Father Gerard de Laurier said that that obstacle was not having the objective intention to promote the good of the church, for instance, by intending to teach heresy or uh, meaning to overthrow the church or whatever. Not sure exactly uh, what he said, but the idea is not to evaluate that position now, um, but only to describe that position so people can understand uh, what he said. 
Now, the idea of an obstacle preventing what would otherwise occur by a divine promise is found also, for instance, in the sacraments. If an unbaptized adult voluntarily receives the sacrament of baptism but has no supernatural contrition, meaning that he persists in grave sin, he has has no intention to give up his mortal sins, then that baptism is valid, but it remains fruitless. That means that the indelible baptismal character is indeed imprinted on the soul, but the man's sins are not forgiven, not his personal sins and not even original sin. So obviously that would be a grave sacrilege. For such a person, original and mortal sin is forgiven when he receives his first valid absolution and confession, or when he attains to perfect contrition, whichever comes first. He could not receive baptism again because baptism was valid the first time, and a baptism cannot be repeated. So I just want to mention that as an aside to show that Father Gerard's idea regarding an obstacle preventing the papacy from being received by someone who has been elected to it and accepted it, is by no means without any kind of theological justification. Okay, now of course, the papacy is not a sacrament, and I'm not saying that there is an equivalence here, but sacred theology does allow reasoning from analogy. And hey, Father Gerard wasn't just anybody. He had taught at the Pontifical Lateran University in Rome, when Pius XII was still Pope. And uh, apparently he was a papal advisor to the, uh, for the dogma of the Assumption in 1950, and uh, also Pius XII's confessor for a very short time. Anyway, Marshall is oddly imprecise and confusing in a summary of Father Gerard's position. On page 234, uh, Marshall writes, quote, His hypothesis suggested that Paul VI was, in fact, the Pope materially and functionally, but due to heresy, he lacked the formal charism of the papacy. The Pope was deprived of something, and hence his position became known as sedeprivationism. That is Marshall's entire explanation of the material formal thesis. Now, readers who aren't already familiar with it are not going to have the faintest idea what Father Gerard meant. To say that Paul VI was Pope materially, without explaining what that means, is going to make people draw the wrong conclusion. Okay? It really just means he had received a valid designation to the papacy. But he was not Pope in any way, shape, or form. He merely had the potential to become Pope had he removed his voluntary obstacle. And who knows what Marshall means by being Pope functionally. Okay? He, he doesn't explain. And to say that, according to the Gerardian thesis, Paul VI lacked the formal charism of the papacy without elaborating on it is also going to have people guessing. We're talking here about matter and form as understood in scholastic philosophy and sacred theology. All right, next, Marshall gets to his critique of sedevacantism, but notice that up to this point, he really hasn't dealt at all with the essence of the sedevacantist argument. All he's done 
is said something about the 1958 conclave, about the third secret of Fatima, and about Father Gerard de Laurier's thesis, which uh, was meant to explain how it is that the Novus Ordo popes aren't true popes. So, what is the essence of the Serevacanus position? Well, in a nutshell, it's this. The traditional Catholic faith, specifically the teachings about the papacy, the church, and the magisterium, cannot be sustained, cannot be upheld, unless we suppose that the apparent popes who followed Pius XII are not true, valid, legitimate popes. Catholic teaching on the papacy precludes John XXIII through Francis from doing what they did in their official capacities. But it's not even just about those individuals. More broadly, it's ultimately about the entire church. After well over five decades since the council, it's evident that the entire institution that is being run by these modernists cannot possibly be the Roman Catholic Church. The doctrines, laws, liturgy, and sacramental rites that have been coming from the Vatican since the election of John XXIII cannot possibly have come from true popes or from the Catholic Church. In short, the argument is this. The Catholic Church is indefectible, but the Vatican II Church has defected. Therefore, the Vatican II Church is not the Catholic Church. That, in a nutshell, is the Sedevacanus argument. Now, I'm not going to get into the individual proofs here now or the different ways that that can be argued. That's all over the Novus Ordo Watch website and is also discussed in many other podcasts. But th that is the Sedevacanus position. And Taylor Marshall doesn't address it at all. And of course, the question is, why not? Anyway, here is Marshall's critique from page 234. Quote, My objection to Sedevacanism is twofold. Sedevacanists do not present a consistent theological narrative for the origin of a crisis without a pope, and they also lack a consistent solution for the formal restoration of the papacy on earth. Unquote. Let me stop right there for a moment. So there he is with his narrative again. There's no consistent narrative for the origin of it all. Well, even if that's true, and I'm not saying it is or isn't, well, that would be of secondary importance. The main question is whether by Catholic theology, the papal claimants after Pius XII can be true popes, whether that's possible. That is the question. And whether the establishment that calls itself the Catholic Church but teaches all these anti-Catholic things is really the Catholic Church. And if the answer to these questions is no, then that's as much of a consistent narrative as we're going to need. I'll say more about that in a minute. The second objection Taylor mentions is that Sedevacanus lack a consistent solution for restoration. Ah, so if you don't know how to cure cancer, you'd better not diagnose the patient with cancer, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, the diagnosis is determined by an examination of the patient, by the symptoms he exhibits, by what the various tests show, and so on. It's not determined 
by whether the doctor knows what to do about the disease. Now, Marshall elaborates. He, he writes, quote, Sedevacandism teaches that from 1958 until around 1980, 100% of the cardinals who were present in the 1958 conclave, 100% of the bishops, and 100% of the laity were duped into submitting to antipopes and their doctrine without a true pope on earth as a valid rival, unquote. Here, the very phraseology is odd. He says Sedevacantism teaches that. Well, Sedevacantism is a diagnosis based on Catholic doctrine. It doesn't teach anything. He should have said, at the very least, that Sedevacantism appears to imply that everyone was duped. And to be honest, if the Sedevacantist conclusion is necessary, then I don't care what that implies about the cardinals or the bishops or whomever. Okay? That's not the primary issue. What follows, follows. It definitely beats accepting Francis as pope and then refusing him submission so you're not tainted by his religion. I think part of the problem here is that we simply don't have all the facts. In my opinion, we simply don't know a lot of things about uh, what happened at the 1958 conclave or shortly thereafter, who knew what and who did what behind the scenes. And to show you that I'm not just saying that, consider, for example, what Monsignor Joseph Clifford Fenton, an Orthodox American theologian who attended Vatican II to assist Cardinal Ottaviani, what he wrote in his personal diary after the election of John XXIII. He references a friend of his who told him something about the 1958 conclave. The moniker Spelly that he uses is a reference to Cardinal Francis Spellman of New York. Here's what Monsignor Fenton writes in his diary for November 2nd, 1960. Quote, Our Maltese friend, who was born in Alexandria, told us that he saw Spelly coming out of the conclave looking white and shaken. Unquote. Now, obviously, that's not proof of anything. But my point is that this is one of a number of indicators that something very sinister took place after the death of Pope Pius XII, and we just don't know a whole lot of stuff yet. I mean, we've seen the results, right? We can see the fruits, and we, and we have to conclude an enemy has done this. So what we do know is that whatever happened accounts for the situation now with this weird Vatican II church that came into being after Pius XII. So that's all, that's my opinion, okay? Uh, but I think it's a reasonable one. And always remember, too, that we're talking here about the mystery of iniquity, most likely, right? The devil's last hurrah. So don't, don't make the objection that, uh, you can't explain it all. Yeah, well, no kidding, Okay? The point isn't to be able to explain it all with some consistent narrative, as Marshall seems to think, but to explain as much as possible in accordance with Catholic doctrine. Whatever we cannot figure out will have to remain shrouded in mystery. Now, notice I said mystery, not contradiction. The Catholic Church is not a human institution. 
Taylor seems to think she is because he thinks that the church can teach all kinds of garbage and lead her children astray. And when that happens, then it's necessary for individual believers to resist and and get others to resist as well until the church rescinds all her false teachings and corrupt sacramental rites. That is treating the church like a merely human institution, no different from the Anglican church, for example. But the Roman Catholic Church is a divine institution. What the heck happened after Pius XII died? (laughs) Beats me. What we know is that what emerged after the conclave of 1958 was a strange new church teaching a strange new religion. Now, that wasn't obvious right away, of course. And that's the reason why practically everyone fell for it. And I say practically since I obviously have no way of knowing what everyone thought or did. Of course, it would be good to be able to explain exactly what happened and how and who did and thought what about it and so on. But that's more more of a luxury discussion, in my opinion. The question isn't what people could or should have known by 1963. The question is, what is obvious now for us in 2020? We have the benefit of hindsight, so let's not refuse to make use of it on the grounds that we can't then quite explain what this would mean for the initial years before it all became obvious. In 2 Corinthians 5.7, St. Paul writes, quote, We walk by faith and not by sight. Unquote. And that is key. God will put an end to this mess in his time. How will he restore everything? I don't know. But then I don't know how God transubstantiates bread and wine into his body, blood, soul, and divinity either. The virtue of faith does not require or seek demonstration. It accepts divinely revealed truths on the authority of God having revealed them. God cannot lie. God cannot be mistaken. He said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. He didn't say that you and I would always have all the answers. So when we come to a point where we have to say, I don't know what's going on here, I can't explain it, then that's fine. Assuming, of course, that we've done all we reasonably can do in this matter, and as long as we adhere to and profess all of the Church's teachings, just as they were taught and believed until the death of Pius XII. See, if the gates of hell can't prevail against the Catholic Church, but they have obviously prevailed against the Vatican II Church, then the only possible conclusion is that the Vatican II Church is not the Catholic Church. Now, that may not be enough of a consistent narrative for Taylor Marshall, but (laughs) then the problem is with Taylor Marshall, okay? And it sure beats reinterpreting the Church's dogmas about her own indefectibility and infallibility to the point where they become meaningless. All right, back to Taylor Marshall. I noticed that in the Amazon Kindle edition of his book, he inserted an extra footnote that refers readers to John Salza and Robert Sisko's book, True or False Pope. 
for what he calls a thorough explanation and refutation of Sedevacantism. Yeah, San Francisco's book was so awesome that they couldn't even get the distinction between internal and occult heresy right. And their book is so theologically flawed that uh, one of their own resistance priests, the Reverend Paul Kramer, published a massive 676-page response entitled To Deceive the Elect. Got it linked in the show notes. Anyway, that just as an aside. And, and notice Marshall was happy to include a footnote on where to find a, you know, supposedly a, a refutation, an explanation of Sedevacantism, but he didn't think to do that uh, for refuting atheism. Very interesting. On pages 234 to 235, Marshall objects to the Sedevacantist position because, as he argues, quote, the sudden ecclesial crisis was not signaled by approximate Marian apparition, miracles, prophecies by holy priests, or signs and wonders. Even Padre Pio of Pietralcina, who spoke regularly with Jesus, Mary, the saints, and the holy souls, failed to learn that John Twenty-Third and Paul VI were antipopes, unquote. Ah, so Taylor Marshall needs signs and wonders in order to conclude that Francis isn't pope. Funny that he doesn't need signs or wonders to conclude that the Catholic magisterium is leading souls to hell with its teachings, or to conclude that a rite of mass promulgated by the Roman pontiff is junk. And of course he invokes Padre Pio, obviously forgetting that no one is obliged to believe Padre Pio was a saint, or even very holy. Now I'm not saying he wasn't holy, I'm just saying that since he was never canonized or beatified by a true pope, no one is obliged to believe in his holiness or to consider him, you know, a standard for anything. So once again, a really lousy argument from Taylor Marshall, one that relies on emotion and popular piety rather than on Catholic doctrine. And his uh, argumentation about miracles and private revelations made me think of Luke 16.31, where our Lord tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Quote, And he said to him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if one rise again from the dead. Unquote. You know, just, just go by pre-Vatican II, traditional Roman Catholic teaching. And if, if that isn't good enough for you, well, then neither will you believe if, you know, there be signs and wonders about it. On page 235 of Infiltration, Marshall elaborates on his second objection to Sedevacantism, saying, quote, The second problem with Sedevacantism is that it lacks a means for restoring the papacy on earth. If there has not been a valid pope since 1958, then there are no valid cardinals walking the earth. Hence, the canonical process that elected Pope Pius XII in 1939 and his successors previously is no longer an option. Any future papal conclave in accord with canon law is now an impossibility. Unquote. Here you can tell that Marshall has obviously not done the least bit of research on the subject. Else he's deliberately making an argument that he knows to be flawed. That objection is one of the oldest and lamest in the book. 
How do we answer it? We answer it by pointing out that Pope Pius XII's constitution on how to elect a Roman pontiff is, of course, merely ecclesiastical law, meaning it's human law. It's not divine law. And such human law automatically ceases when its fulfillment becomes impossible. No, I'm not making this up. This is a general principle of law taught by the church. For instance, in the 1957 book Canon Law, a Text and Commentary by two eminent canonists, Fathers Lincoln Buscaren and Adam Ellis, both of whom were consultors for the Holy See, we read on page 35, quote, It is common doctrine that a law ceases to bind without repeal in two cases. First, if the circumstances are such that the law has become positively harmful or unreasonable. Second, if the purpose of the law has entirely ceased for the entire community. Unquote. What this means is that Pius XII's law on how the Supreme Pontiff is to be elected, namely by the cardinals in conclave, has ceased because there are no more valid cardinals. Now, what happens when there are no more valid cardinals? How will the church then elect a pope? On that question, theologians have been divided and have written in fairly general terms. Right? There is no definitive guidance or clear procedure. Basically, the answer given is that the duty to elect a pope would fall to the clergy of Rome, since the pope is the bishop of Rome, or it would fall to the universal church, whose head the pope is. Now, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole now, because we're not going to get a definitive answer anyway, and all I mean to do here is show how shallow Marshall's objection is. He didn't bother to look at this issue in a serious manner, and so I also don't feel terribly obliged to respond to him seriously. Now, it is true that the church must always have a way to elect or otherwise select a pope. Okay, that follows from Catholic dogma and is contained in Vatican I's dogmatic constitution, Pastor Eternus, which says, quote, Thus then, as he, meaning Christ, sent the apostles whom he had selected from the world for himself, as he himself had been sent by the Father, so in his church he wished the pastors and the doctors to be even to the consummation of the world. Unquote. That's Denzinger, 1821. The question is whether such pastors and teachers must always exist in actuality or whether it suffices that they exist potentially, meaning that they can be appointed or elected, that the capability is there, even if for the moment there is no consensus on how it would be done. Now, this is obviously a difficulty with sedevacantism, okay? It's not a contradiction, but it's a difficulty. But whatever the case may be, you don't solve this conundrum by saying that therefore Francis is the Pope, you just can't accept his magisterium, or his saints, or his annulments, or his laws, or anything else you don't think jibes with pre-Vatican II teaching. That is definitely not the way to solve it. So let me state this clearly. Just because you don't know what the correct answer is to a given problem doesn't mean 
you cannot know what is not the correct answer. Simple example, imagine you have a multiple choice math test and the problem you're asked to resolve is, what is 456 divided by 19? Well, without using a calculator, you may not know whether the right answer is 24, 26, or 34. Okay? But you do know that the right answer is not 220. Okay? So that's pretty much what we're dealing with here. Taylor Marshall is complaining that Sedevacandas can't demonstrate whether the answer is 24, 26, or 34, so therefore it must be 220. I mean, that's just utter baloney. So, in short, the difficulty of restoring a pope does not validate a man we know cannot be the pope. It's not that difficult. So Marshall concludes on page 235, quote, Since Sedevacanus cannot produce a consistent origin narrative and cannot provide a means by which the current crisis will be resolved with a future valid and orthodox pope, it is an untenable theological position. It is broken at both ends, unquote. Actually, it's not broken at both ends. It merely contents itself with diagnosing the situation in light of Catholic doctrine and then letting the chips fall where they may. But notice that there's one thing Taylor skipped over entirely, and that is the answer given by Seda privationism, the material formal thesis. I mean, he brought it up in that chapter as being the position advanced by Father Gerard de Laurier. He never refuted it, and then he completely ignored the solution it provides for how to get a pope. Because that is perhaps the best part about the material formal thesis. It gives you a very easy and very clean solution to the problem of getting a new pope. I won't get into the details of it, but I do want to outline it for you. Now, please don't rush to judgment about this, because there is very strong theological support in favor of this position. There are also some difficulties with it, and I'm basically neutral on the issue, okay? I, I don't endorse it, neither do I condemn it. In my experience, though, most of the people who reject it have not quite understood it or are not aware of the evidence in favor of it in terms of pre-Vatican II theology. Anyway, so how would we get a true pope under the material formal thesis? Well, the long and the short of it is that according to this thesis, the Novus Ordo Cardinals, although they are not true cardinals, are nevertheless valid electors of the Pope and have the power to elect a valid Pope. The only requirement would be that the man they pick be actually a Catholic and not, you know, a modernist or some other public heretic. That would solve the problem, wouldn't it? That is, That, that would be a very clean, very easy solution, all things considered. And Taylor Marshall doesn't address this at all. He could, totally ignores it, although he did bring up the Sedeprivationist thesis a page or two earlier. So he wanted to talk about Sedeprivationism. He did not want to hear Sedeprivationism's uh, answer, though, to his challenge on how to get a new pope. I find that very interesting.
All right. I'm going to put links, by the way, into the show notes for where you can find an elaborate explanation for the material formal thesis so that you can see for yourself that this isn't made up. Okay. This isn't just like a, a convenience based uh, idea to provide an easy answer to get out of a conundrum. It's actually founded solidly on Catholic philosophy and theology. But again, the point here is not whether this thesis is true or false. The point is that Taylor Marshall brings it up and then totally ignores the solution it provides, all the while blasting Sedevacanus for not having a solution. Epic fail on Marshall's part. All right, next Marshall discusses the resignationist position, that is the position of those who say that Benedict XVI is the true pope because, so they claim, he never resigned validly. And uh, we're going to skip that and go straight to his defense of the recognize and resist position starting on page 239. And boy, is there a lot to say about that. But you know what? Before we go there, let's finally take a quick break so we can breathe a little bit. We'll be right back. It's not just a podcast. It's a Trapcast. Trapcast. What is true restoration, and why is it the answer for you and the Catholic world at large? On no other internet platform can you access a treasury of Catholic educational material, mostly in audio format, covering such courses as the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas, Catholic Spirituality, Sacred Scripture, Catholic History, Papal Encyclicals, The True Nature and Consequence of the Second Vatican Council, and much, much more. Most talks, videos, and transcripts are designed by leading clerics of our time, many of whom are lecturers in the world's top English-speaking traditional Catholic seminary, to provide the most beneficial information for our times. The interviews are delivered in a specific style to be captivating and comfortably understood by the average layman, and True Restoration's extensive repository collectively provides all that is required for acquiring the most comprehensive religious online education. With the option of full annual membership or monthly subscription, you can easily access this unique and extensive, spiritually enriching and deeply instructive knowledge base to aid your journey to true wisdom and understanding. For Catholic teaching at its best online, visit truerestoration.org. That's T-R-U-E, as in the one true faith, R-E-S-T-O-R-A-T-I-O-N, as in to restore all things in Christ, If you're looking for EWTN, this ain't it. Trapcast.
And here we are back again with more of our evaluation of Taylor Marshall's greatest literary accomplishment, Infiltration, the Plot to Destroy the Church from Within. Continuing with chapter 32, we're now on page 240, where Marshall writes, quote, Since no pope since 1950 has exercised his extraordinary magisterium by declaring anything infallibly ex cathedra, the Catholic may in good faith and conscience resist errors spoken by a pope on Twitter, on an airplane, or even in a papal document. Unquote. You know, Marshall at times writes like a sophomore in high school. There is so much wrong with what he just said, it's unbelievable. First, there is the unstated premise that only those things are obligatory on the Catholic conscience that are defined infallibly ex cathedra, as though the non-infallible magisterium were not binding, or only binding insofar as each believer thinks that the Pope didn't make a mistake. And of course, when a Catholic does come to the conclusion that the Pope got it wrong, why, then obviously the individual's position prevails over that of the Pope, right? So that would mean that the Pope teaches bindingly only when he agrees with you. Well, whom are you really following then? The Pope or yourself? Second, Marshall is lumping it all together. Magisterial document, airplane interview, Twitter comment. I doubt that he means that Francis' tweets and interview comments are just as magisterial as his official documents. Third, Marshall says that a Catholic may resist what he believes to be errors in papal teaching. But may implies that one doesn't have to. In other words, Marshall is saying it is perfectly fine to accept Francis' errors just as it is fine to resist them. Did he really mean that? I doubt it, but it's what he's saying. So, although he argued earlier in the same chapter that it's not theologically tenable to accept the errors of Francis and Vatican II, here he's now implying that it's just fine to do exactly that, if you prefer. And if you want to say that, no, that's not really what he means here, he really means you're not allowed to embrace Francis' erroneous teachings, then okay, fine. But then he's saying that following the non-infallible papal magisterium can lead you to losing the faith. And that contradicts the perennial Catholic teaching on the papacy that we've shared so many times on this podcast program. For those not familiar, I'll put a link in the show notes. Then Marshall says that uh, what he just said about resisting Francis also holds true for resisting Vatican II. And he repeats the same truncated quotes from Paul VI uh, that he had already quoted dishonestly in chapter 19 on page 143. And once again, he leaves out any ellipsis points so the reader can't tell that stuff has been left out. Now, if you'd like to hear my extensive commentary on that, it's discussed towards uh, the very end of Tratcast 27, which you can find at tradcast.org. 
Basically, what Marshall does is he quotes Paul VI from the closing speech of the fourth session of Vatican II on December 7th, 1965, and then he quotes Paul VI from an audience he gave in January of 1966. In both cases, Paul VI mentions that Vatican II did not include any extraordinary papal pronouncements, no infallible ex cathedra definitions. So Marshall concludes triumphantly on page 240, quote, Since Vatican II did not bear the mark of infallibility or the extraordinary magisterium, a Catholic can claim without impiety that the council may have contained mistakes, unquote. The problem here is twofold. For one thing, Marshall doesn't quote the entirety of what Paul VI said. He truncates the sentences, cutting them off before they're finished. And he cuts them off because the rest of what Paul VI says contradicts the recognize and resist position that Marshall's promoting. I'm not going to give you the full quotes again now. You can uh, listen to them in Tradcast 27. But basically, Paul VI was saying that even though Vatican II didn't make any infallible pronouncements, nonetheless, its teaching is authoritative and binding, coming from the supreme ordinary magisterium, and it must be accepted by all the faithful with docile submission. Taylor Marshall didn't think it was necessary to let you know about that part. Then, the second problem with Taylor using these statements by Paul VI is that they contradict his own recognize and resist position in principle. Keep in mind, Marshall's whole position is that Vatican II is not binding because it's not infallible. But then, in the same breath, he's telling you that Paul VI's comments in his closing speech and at a general audience after the council, somehow those are binding. Those are authoritative. I mean, he doesn't say that, but he does treat them that way. So when Paul VI invokes his supposed apostolic authority to declare that man has a right to religious liberty in virtue of his human nature, then Taylor Marshall says, no worries, that's not binding, resist it. But when the same Paul VI gives a closing speech or an address at a general audience without invoking any apostolic authority and says that Vatican II didn't make any infallible pronouncements, Marshall runs with that and takes it as justification for dismissing anything from Vatican II he doesn't agree with, even though Paul VI added that, of course, the teachings of Vatican II are nevertheless binding. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not Catholic theology. This is not even serious debate. This is shysterism. And Marshall is the shyster. If I were a Novus Ordo or a semi-trad who bought infiltration thinking it to be a serious piece of research, I'd demand my money back. Now, we're still not quite done yet. Marshall continues his pathetic argumentation in favor of the recognize and resist position. On page 240, he writes, quote, the terminology of resistance derives from the Latin Vulgate version of St. Paul's language in his epistle to the Galatians 2.11. I'm going to skip the Latin here. When, however, Cephas came to Antioch, I resisted him to his face because he was to be blamed. Here St. Paul recognizes the authority of Cephas, St. Peter, as a valid and true pope 
but still resists him in defense of the gospel. Unquote. Man, I, I really don't know where he comes up with that stuff. First, what he quoted from Galatians only contains the word resist and not the word recognize. So his argument isn't even properly supported. Second, if I'm not mistaken, the origin of the term recognize and resist is the state of our contest Father Chikada. I think he came up with that descriptive moniker for the non-state of traditionalist position. In any case, it's very lame for Marshall to bring up Galatians 2.11 at this point and then not even make a serious argument. And that has been answered so many times. I'm just going to refer uh, people who have not yet seen the state of Akana's response to that argument to our blog post of June 14th, 2018, entitled, The St. Paul Resisted St. Peter to His Face Objection, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. Marshall ends chapter 32 by saying on pages 241 and 242, quote, I trace out each of these positions in charity with a firm belief that this final recognize and resist position is the only solution that conforms to scripture, tradition, and our contemporary crisis. The Catholic Church has been infiltrated all the way to the top. We have a valid pope and valid cardinals, but we have received the mantle of St. Athanasius and St. Catherine of Siena to call respectfully and reverently certain spiritual fathers back to Christ and the unadulterated apostolic faith, unquote. You know, I don't recall Taylor demonstrating that he's received the mantle of St. Athanasius and St. Catherine of Siena. I mean, anyone can say that, right? Including Luther, Jansen, Arius, Quesnel, Feeney, Dollinger. But that comment right there reveals what he really believes, which is that the Holy See is no longer the guarantor of the Catholic faith, but is now the purveyor of an adulterated faith, and that you must now turn to another source, one in opposition to the Holy See, to get the true faith. But don't worry, it's a reverent opposition. And that is what he claims is rooted in scripture and tradition. Wow. Well, here's something from Pope Pius XI. Listen to this. Quote, in this one church of Christ, no man can be or remain who does not accept, recognize, and obey the authority and supremacy of Peter and his legitimate successors. Unquote. That's from uh, Pius XI's encyclical Mortalium Animos, number 11. Did you catch it? The Pope said, recognize and obey, not recognize and resist. All right, the last chapter of Infiltration is number 33, entitled Spiritual Weapons Against Demonic Enemies. Although Marshall had just claimed in the closing paragraph of the prior chapter that recognize and resist is the solution to it all, he now proclaims on page 243, quote, Holding to a reverent recognize and resist position is not enough. This is the diagnosis, not the medicine. 
unquote. Aha, so it's a diagnosis now. He just said that it was the solution. And he chastised Seda Vacantes for not having a solution. We're the ones who point out that Seda Vacantism is, above all, a diagnosis. But at least it's the correct diagnosis. The cure for it is another matter. And in my opinion, God is withholding that cure from us in order to keep us from thinking that one of us, a mere man, can fix this. Because that man would then be the savior of the church, you know? And as we all know, there's only one savior of the church, Jesus Christ. This last chapter in Infiltration is basically just a call to spiritual fortification and perseverance. Nothing wrong with that in principle, obviously, but you can't help but notice some inconsistencies. For instance, on page 244, Taylor writes, quote, We must also attack with sound Catholic doctrine and be on guard against all heresy and schism within our ranks, unquote. Okay, sounds good. Sounds good, right? But considering his recognize and resist position, the question that inevitably arises is, does the sound Catholic doctrine that he wants to attack with, does that include the living papal magisterium or not? And if not, that means that he's refusing submission to the man he acknowledges as Pope, and that is the very definition of of schism, which he just said we must also guard against. Is your head spinning yet? <whistles> Ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of the chapters. Now there follow a number of appendices. One of them is a who's who in the book, which is pretty useful because he, you know, does mention a lot of names and it's, it's nice to be able to look them up in the back. Now, whether everything he says there is accurate is another matter. So, for instance, he writes on page 259 about John Paul II, quote, While he supported the reforms of the Second Vatican Council, he was generally seen as doctrinally conservative, and he upheld the Church's traditional teachings, unquote. You have got to be kidding. <laughs> Which is it? Did he support Vatican II? Or did he uphold the traditional teachings? I have a suspicion that Taylor phrased it that way to please the publisher, but that's just a suspicion. John Paul II most certainly did not teach traditional Catholicism. He was a huge proponent of the errors of Vatican II. He introduced the disgusting theology of the body. He advanced the apostate theology that underlies the Assisi interfaith prayer meetings, and so on. Even many of the good positions he held were tarnished by his false philosophy and theology. So, for instance, his opposition to abortion would be based more on the dignity of man rather than on the law of God. Or his limited endorsement of the traditional Latin Mass was based on respect for the feelings of the people who had a nostalgic attachment to it, etc., so it's, it's completely unjustifiable for him to say that John Paul II upheld the traditional teachings. It's pathetic. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you've made it this far in the podcast, let me ask you, what do you now think of Taylor Marshall's book, Infiltration? The publisher, Sophia Institute Press, calls it a 
carefully documented book. How is that not a flat-out lie? But hey, at least Marshall was able to get the foreword written by Bishop Athanasius Schneider. Now, I have to say that going through this book was very tedious, but I figured, you know, someone's going to have to take one for the team here and let the air out of this totally inflated hack job. And I'm not the only one, by the way, okay? Of course, there are other people as well who've reviewed the work critically, and one of them is Kevin Simons, a conservative novels ordo who is a very thorough and serious researcher. He released two PDF files with his findings, and uh, he's much more detail-oriented than I've been in these podcasts. Of course, Simon's critiques of infiltration are linked in the show notes, which you can access at tradcast.org. Again, you just scroll down to Tradcast 28 and click on that link, and that will open the page with all the information that you need. And that includes links to more critical reviews of Marshall's infiltration by other writers to complement my review here. And uh, these people are not even Seda Vacantists. All right. So also, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that I agree with everything that is mentioned in those reviews. Okay. I just want to link them because I think they're worthwhile overall and provide some food for thought. Now, I'm also going to list and link in the show notes some of the video interviews Marshall did when his book came out. This way you can see how he promoted his own work, now that you know how shoddy it is. Interestingly enough, Michael Voris has since deleted his video interview with Marshall. Um, I'm guessing that's because Marshall ended up uh, endorsing the SSPX. But um, we'll link the page anyway so you can see that for yourself. You can see... Uh, that it's been removed. By the way, the Call Me Jorge blog released a post on April 2nd of this year entitled Infiltration, Who is Really Doing It? And there the blogger presents a Taylor Marshall timeline, chronologically reviewing the milestones in Marshall's life, his associations with various groups and individuals, especially Opus Dei, uh, books he's published, and so on. All publicly accessible information. And uh, he wonders if Marshall is perhaps not himself part of the infiltration of the church. That would explain why he doesn't mention the role of Opus Dei in this book at all. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been very patient in suffering through this with me, and I'll have you know that patience is rewarding. Because... Of course, I've kept the best for last. Yeah. Marshall released his book on May 31st, 2019. That's when it began to be sold in stores and especially on Amazon.com. Now, I knew something was off when in less than 24 hours, Infiltration already had a solid 5-star rating on Amazon based on a total of over 800 reviews. Yes, We've got the screenshots to prove it. Check the show notes. Now, how is that possible? How do you get that many reviews, virtually all of them positive, on the day of release? Well, Taylor found a way. Here is how he did it. He used a so-called launch team. 
Now, it's a smart idea to assemble a few people who will help you promote your new book in various places, especially online, by making people aware of it, answering questions, pointing out what a great read it is, and so forth. That's basically advertising. Nothing wrong with that, in principle. But Taylor did way more than that. For one thing, he didn't recruit just a few individuals. He recruited a massive number of people. In the back of his book, there's a section entitled, A Special Thanks to Our Launch Team. And that section lists the names of the people who read an advanced copy of the book and helped promote it. Now, can you guess how many names are listed there? No, you can't. It's a total of eight and a half pages of names in small print. I found a way to count them. Ladies and gentlemen, he's got the names of 2,024 individuals printed as being part of his launch team. And you know what? Those are only the names of those who agreed to have their names printed. Those who didn't want their names mentioned and helped anyway are not included in the list. Unless Marshall made it a requirement to have your name printed in the book if you're on his launch team, which I can't imagine he would do. Makes no sense. So, 2,024 known launch team members. Now, compare that to only 176 footnotes in the book. That's 11 and a half launch team members for each footnote. If only he'd had that many researchers helping him. So, the question presents itself, how did Marshall get such an army of people for his launch team? Well, I can tell you how. On April 3rd, 2019, Taylor published a post on his blog at taylormarshall.com. The post was called Dr. Taylor Marshall's Infiltration Launch Team. The post has since been removed, but don't worry, you can find a saved copy in the show notes. I'm not making this up. The post was an application form to be on his launch team. Here's what the introductory text says, quote, Thank you for wanting to join our launch team for infiltration, the plot to destroy the Catholic Church from within. We are looking for 200 launch team advanced readers who are, one, willing to read a private, do not share, advanced copy of the book in PDF format, two, give us feedback, three, write a review of infiltration on Amazon.com, uh-huh. four, and help promote it when it debuts on May 20th, 2019, tentative publish date. If we select you, then your name will be printed on the last page of the book with a thank you from me. If you are willing to help me promote the book, please fill in the forms below, and we will notify you within the week if you have been selected. Godspeed, Taylor Marshall, unquote. The application consisted of nine questions people were requested to answer, including the following. Are you willing to read your advanced digital copy of Infiltration Book in under one week so that you have it read before it goes to the public? Are you willing to write a review of Infiltration Book on Amazon.com? And uh, not in the form of a question, Applicants can select yes or no as to whether they are willing to promote infiltration on social media through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or by emailing friends. So, how does this get Taylor hundreds of overwhelmingly positive reviews on Amazon? Uh, 
It's not like he told anyone what to write in the review or what rating to give his book. True enough. But there really was no need to tell people that, since he was obviously going to choose for his launch team only those applicants who answered that they were committing to promoting his book, which implies that they're not going to give it a bad rating. And presto, there was Taylor's army of positive Amazon reviewers. And since they got an advanced copy and promised to read the book within one week, it was clear that they would have their reviews ready by launch day, which uh, ended up being May 31st. And although he said that he was recruiting only about 200 people, given the number of names printed in the book, it turned out to be over 10 times that many. So that's how he ended up getting over 800 reviewers on day one. And as of now, mid-July 2020, the book has a total of 1,742 reviews, showing a solid five stars with an average rating of 4.8 stars. Now, last year, one of the Taylor Marshall launch team members contacted Novos Ordo Watch and forwarded a bulk email that Taylor had sent to every team member requesting that when they write their Amazon review to please not say that they received an advanced copy. Now, why might that be? Did Taylor perhaps not want prospective buyers of his book to see that virtually all of the reviews being posted in the first few days are by people whom he recruited to write reviews for him? That would look rather hmm, inglorious, wouldn't it? Look, if nothing else, Taylor Marshall is clever. Hey, there's a reason why the number one interpersonal skill that people have endorsed him for on LinkedIn is fundraising. I'm not kidding. Check the show notes for a screenshot. Now, if I'm not mistaken, what Marshall did there with his strategically procured Amazon reviews is a practice called astroturfing. According to dictionary.com, the definition of astroturfing is, quote, the deceptive tactic of simulating grassroots support for a product, cause, etc., undertaken by people or organizations with an interest in shaping public opinion, unquote. Yep, I think that would qualify. So no wonder Infiltration quickly became a bestseller on Amazon, reaching number one in Catholicism on launch day. Now, the question I have is why? Why did Taylor Marshall write this book, a work so poorly researched and written, and yet marketed like a pro? Why? I don't know the answer, but let's look at what Dr. Marshall has achieved with this book so far. Number one, he must be making a killing on it. Considering how well it's been selling, it's safe to assume that he's made a good amount of money on it. Number two, it's given Marshall an immense amount of name recognition. He's a star. Everyone in the conservative Novus Ordo and semi-traditionalist camp now knows Taylor Marshall. He's been interviewed by a lot of people. Faith Goldie, Michael Voris, John Henry Weston, Mike Church. He's even been on TV, on Fox Business, discussing the book with Lauren Green. And, uh, of course, he just recently appeared on One American News and gave an interview there, and that triggered a tweet from President Donald Trump, 
who quoted Taylor saying that there is a war on Christianity. And in response to that, Taylor sent a tweet thanking the president and including, of course, a link to his book on Amazon for more sales. Number three, lastly, and I think this is the most important benefit for him, with the name recognition, there comes the power to influence. That, in my opinion, is ultimately the motive behind the book. And I suspect that Opus Dei is ultimately behind it, and Taylor was just chosen to be the front man. By publishing Infiltration and getting so many positive reviews and having his face all over the conservative Novus Ordo and semi-trad websites, Marshall receives the power to influence countless souls with his ideas. And that means he can help shape and direct what people are thinking about Francis, about Vatican II, about the Novus Ordo Church, and of course also about Sedevacantism. So, to conclude my review, let me issue a challenge to Taylor Marshall. Considering how bad the quality of the content of his book is, how little serious research was put into it, how poorly it was proofread, how sorely it's lacking in proper documentation, and considering how dishonestly it was advertised, I challenge Taylor Marshall to do two things. Number one, disclose how much money he's made on the book so far. And number two, donate 5% of those profits to a charitable cause that both he and I can agree on. Look, 5% is not a terribly huge amount, but I think it would be quite appropriate given everything that's wrong with this greatest literary accomplishment of his. Now, we've spent two long podcasts going through infiltration and looked at many things in it that are wrong, misleading, improperly sourced, and so forth. But there are also a number of things that are simply missing from the book, things that you would expect to see, given that the aim is to expose the infiltration of the Catholic Church. For instance, there is no mention whatsoever of the book The Plot Against the Church by Maurice Penet, published in 1962. A copy of that book was given to every bishop that attended the Second Vatican Council to inform them about the Freemasonic, communist, Jewish infiltration into the church and their revolutionary plans. To no avail, obviously, but still, that's significant and needs to be included in a serious book about the infiltration of the church. We've got a link to that book in the show notes. Likewise, Marshall could and should have mentioned Franco Bellegrandi's book, Nikita Roncalli, Counterlife of a Pope, which was released in 1994 and caused quite a stir at the time. The book is about John XXIII, and in it, Bellegrandi, a former member of the Vatican Noble Guard, relates how Count Paolo Sella of Monteluce told him about an encounter he had a few days before the 1958 conclave with the high Freemasonic authority in touch with the Vatican, who told him that Cardinal Siri would not be the next pope because the Masons had already picked Roncalli, and that they had their representatives in the conclave, and that the church was in their hands. I'd say that's pretty significant to mention, isn't it? Even if you don't believe that it's true, it's still 
the testimony released by a Vatican insider. And he wasn't even a sedevacantist, to my knowledge. So move over, St. Gallen Mafia. Okay, The real takeover occurred in the conclave of 1958, not that of 2013. Also, Marshall made no mention of Patrick Henry Omler and his booklet Questioning the Validity of the Masses Using the New All-English Canon, published in 1968 after the first vernacular masses had been introduced, even before the full Novus Ordo Misse in uh, October of 1967. Those masses had already changed the words of consecration to such an extent that they were now invalid or, at the very least, highly doubtful. Another thing Marshall doesn't talk about is the controversy about whether Sister Lucy of Fatima was replaced around 1960 by an imposter. Now, there's ample scientific evidence for that from real professionals in their fields who stand behind their evaluations with their names and reputations, all of which you can review at the Sister Lucy Truth website at sisterlucytruth.org. Marshall also doesn't bring up the famous article How the Jews Changed Catholic Thinking by Joseph Roddy, which appeared in Look magazine in January of 1966, just after Vatican II closed. Nor does he mention the book Judaism and the Vatican, an attempt at spiritual subversion by Leon de Ponsens. Same for the book The New Montinian Church by Father Joaquin Science Ariaga, published in 1972. There is so much more that Marshall could have discussed, but it seems obvious to me that substance based on solid research with good documentation, that was not the aim of this book. Infiltration is closer to tabloid journalism than it is to academic study. And for a PhD in philosophy, that is inexcusable. And it's a pity, because this could have been a really great book. Even if the author ultimately didn't decide in favor of Sedevacantism, it could have still been great research and great content on everything else. But I guess not. By the way, on Twitter, Taylor has blocked Novus Ordo Watch, which means now I can't see what he tweets, and he doesn't really see my tweets either. And that's not an unusual thing to do. I mean, I've blocked a few accounts myself, Usually it's people who are just a nuisance or who try to waste my time by distracting me or just accounts that are blasphemous or immoral in other ways. But I want to mention why I got blocked by Taylor Marshall because I think it's revealing. I don't recall the date anymore, uh, unfortunately, and um, I do have a screenshot of the tweet that I'm going to put in the show notes, but it doesn't show the date. But in any case, it was some time not too long after the uh, release of his book when he was, you know, heavily promoting his greatest literary accomplishment. And so one day he tweeted out the following, quote, If you're in New York City, I'd love to meet you. I plan to attend solemn high mass at Holy Innocence this Sunday, unquote. To which I responded something like, what Taylor really means is that he would love for you to meet him. And that is what got me blocked. Yeah, it must have hit a nerve. So, is Marshall himself an infiltrator into the church? 
or into what he thinks is the church? I don't know. I doubt it. I suspect he's more of a useful idiot being played by Opus Dei for their nefarious ends. But whether he is or isn't an infiltrator, one thing is for sure. If you purchased a copy of Infiltration, thinking it to be a well-researched and thoroughly documented work exposing the internal subversion of the Catholic Church, then Taylor Marshall has definitely succeeded in infiltrating your wallet. And this concludes this lengthy Trapcast 28. Hope you found it informative and useful. Please don't forget to share it with others, because the truth, as our blessed Lord said, will set us free. Until next time, God bless you. Rapcast.